You're a hippie, ain't you? If labeling is your thing, yes. And what does a hippie want from God? A world where people can do their thing and not be hassled. Very groovy. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 58, Acid Reflux. (laughs) This is Noah Diamond inviting you to tune in, turn on, and join us for a long, strange trip through Skidoo, the 1968 comedy which contains the final film performance of Mr. Groucho Marx. Sitting just across the ocean from me, for some reason, applying an eyedropper to some blotter paper is the always groovy <laughs> Matthew Conium. Good day to you, Matthew. Hello. No- Whoa. <laughs> that was a, one, of the, one, one of the dogs of our special guest. So can you recognize that boss? <laughs> if you can, you, you'll, you'll know who our guest is going to be. Uh, yes. Hello. Um, I'm, um, I just wanted to say that, though, I have seen the film before. Uh, on this occasion, I did do an experiment. And um, I should say to everyone listening that I am not in any way encouraging you to do this as well. But I did watch the film completely sober. Uh, under oh. <laughs> under the influence of absolutely nothing at all, it was it was touch and go for five oh. or six hours afterwards. But uh... <laughs> you got to be careful. Someone had to talk it. you down. <laughs> you need a guide right by your side as you watch this film. And I'm very happy to tell you that the voice you just heard and uh, the owner of the voice of the dog you just heard is our very special guest. Returning champion Cinco Paul, who last joined us for episode five and subsequently hosted us as guests on his delightful podcast, Make Him Watch It, which has recently returned with excellent new episodes. Cinco's work, often co-written with Ken Dario, includes the screenplays for Horton Hears a Who, Despicable Me, and The Secret Life of Pets, and the stage musicals Bubble Boy and AD16. Cinco and Ken also created the streaming series Schmigadoon, whose second season premiered this year. Cinco is the series' songwriter and showrunner. And um, if I talk too much about Schmigadoon, there's a real risk that I will embarrass our guest (laughs) by gushing about how great it is. So rather than that, let me just recommend it as, as highly and as sincerely as I would recommend anything. If you haven't seen Schmigadoon, do yourself a favor. And now here he is, the one, the only, Cinco. That's me. Uh, thank you for having me back. You know, when you when you started doing these deep dives into the films, I thought, oh, maybe they'll bring me back. I'm like, will it be duck soup? Will it be monkey <laughs> business? You brought Scott Alexander back to do Night in Casablanca. You know, not a classic, but you know, solid film and then Finally, Noah reached out to me for for this gem, so I am truly honored (laughs) to have been invited back on the podcast to do the deep dive into the classic Skidoo, which I had never seen. Yeah, which I'm happy to hear that. This was your introduction to Skidoo, which I guess, I don't know if we should apologize for that or not. (laughs) But uh, one thing this podcast has, I think, occasionally demonstrated is that the stature or quality of the film we're talking about uh, does not always correlate to the quality of the episode we produce. Some of our most interesting conversations (laughs) have been about the most compromised uh, pieces of work. 
Um, and Cinco, since you are a returning guest and our listeners heard back in episode five, your Marx Brothers origin story, I thought maybe this time I'd ask you if you might talk about a recent Marx Brothers experience sometime in recent years that uh, the Marx Brothers have crossed your path in some way. <laughs> well, that would be scary <laughs> if they had actually crossed my path. Um, yeah, you know, speaking of Schmigadoon, there's a Groucho reference in season two that that I put in, which was um, we have a scene which is a, a Godspell parody, and we're parodying the way they did the parables in Godspell. And, you know, often in the original, they did a lot of, like, celebrity impressions as part of it. It was very corny and hoagie, and so they'd do a W.C. Fields or a Mae West, or, you know, they, they, they were... Uh, sprinkled throughout. So Julie Klausner wrote this episode and she wrote this great send up of a Godspell parable. And she had, I think, Mae West and James Cagney and Clark Gable. And so I switched out Clark Gable for Groucho and had him, had one of the the hippies say, and that's the most ridiculous parable I ever heard, you know. And, uh, but what I found was we're in Canada and these young actors, you know, in their 20s, Canadian had no point of reference for Mae West or Groucho Marx or James Cagney. They like they had no idea what that was. And so the day we were shooting, it was Keegan-Michael Key and I like painstakingly walking them through how to say, that's the most ridiculous parable I ever heard. You know, it's it's a very specific inflection. And they if if they if you don't have a reference, if you've never really heard Groucho say it or heard other people do it it was really hard to get them there and also it felt very skidoo like <laughs> like here's the two old guys trying to teach the young generation <laughs> you know how to how to talk like Mae West and Groucho Marx and James Cagney so so that was my late but actually you know I think uh the actress Alex Gullison did the line I think she did it all right. I mean, they didn't have to be great. Part of the joke is that they weren't great impressions, but it had to be at least partially recognizable. I don't know. No, did you did you recognize it? Oh yes, I caught it, and I and I was okay. Good. And was delighted to catch it. And I I think it's even been mentioned in the council occasionally. Shmigadoon comes up because you're a member and because uh, members of the council have seen it. And I think somebody mentioned specifically. There is a Groucho reference. Yeah, I was. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I would have been delighted by a Groucho reference anyway. But knowing that you were behind <laughs> it and that it came from uh, someone who knows and loves Groucho, um, and and actually, I also have thought revisiting Skidoo recently. I was occasionally reminded of some of the the hippie sections of Schmigadoon season two, the the times when you're um, taking off on hair and Godspell and so forth. There's a little bit of a an overlap. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's especially sort of, which is what a lot of this was, was sort of the the clash between the old movie stars and sort of an attempt to yeah to portray the hippies, which like I don't think any movie ever did it well, except maybe Easy Rider, right? Yeah. But I think every other attempt was a massive failure. Including this spoiler <laughs> alert. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, jump too far ahead. But yeah. Well, let's uh, let's jump ahead uh, to the late 1960s. Groucho is in his late 70s, and you know it's a sort of famously fallow period for Groucho. Uh, you bet your life is over. 
numerous attempts to bring it back in one way or another have failed. At this point, his last appearances in feature films had been cameos more than 10 years ago in The Story of Mankind and Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. Before that, you'd have to go back to uh, Girl in Every Port. Matthew, where do we find... Oh, why would you do that? Oh, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, he was, have, he, he, was, he was not very active in films, and it's even longer since he was active in films that really used him to great effect. Um, in your book, That's Me, Groucho, Matthew, you characterize Groucho in this period. Um, both casting about for work, also turning down a number of things that seemed promising, um, but not skidoo. Uh, tell us where Groucho is in 1968 and w- what leads him here. Yeah, I think he he's basically um, not not too bothered. I mean, the 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 other the other periods uh, of time when when he's not getting a lot of work, he's desperate to. You know, the 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 really classic example being between the big store and uh, and Copacabana. Uh, he's you know he's out virtually pounding the streets. You know, going knocking from door to door, uh, trying to to keep his 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 name and his image in in the popular consciousness. By this time, I think he felt. That he had proved himself, that he had had this huge solo hit on television and radio. Uh, he was an elder statesman. He was secure in 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 the pop culture memory bank. And I think you know if if Aaron hadn't come along and if the big college revival hadn't come along I think he would have been quite content to just spend most of his time at home uh, turning up on on the occasional chat show or whatever to to talk about old times um, so I think that's that's the answer really is that he he really wasn't all that fussed. So uh, when obviously we can look at the, the fact that like Fellini tried to get him in a couple of movies and he turned them down and, and think oh my god what what might that have been like and then oh but then you know why on earth did he did he then turn that down and accept Skidoo? Um I I think it's not not for any you know anything that's really much to do with with Skidoo itself to be honest. Um uh, I, I think it was just a, a very flattering featured role in a big star casting, which he would have recognised several of his peers as well as as well as uh, newer stars. A big name director, no doubt, a nice fee, uh, not much work. I think he says only five days, and he, he is only in a couple of scenes. Um, but I think more importantly than anything else, near to home. Uh, I think the reason why he turned down Fellini and why he turned down some of those other more interesting things is just because he would have had to travel and because he would have had to stay away from home for for periods of time, and he. Just just didn't want to do that so um i think that you know that that's about as deeply as he got into skidoo i think as as in terms of weighing up the offer do you think jackie gleason had something to do with this because i know they did the gallagher and sheen thing a year or so before this yeah but they don't share the screen so it's not like let's hang out together and make a movie but no but Groucho did say that that uh, he discussed it with gleason and they sort of agreed to do it together so uh, yeah yeah, in uh, Florabelle Muir's column on May 26, 1968, she quotes uh, Gleason telling Groucho, I wish you'd do this picture with me. We'd have a lot of fun together. Um, and, of course, they aren't ever together in the picture. And when Groucho arrived to do his part, he found that he wasn't even on the set anymore. Gleason had already filmed his part and was <laughs> was gone. Bait and switch. Yeah. <laughs> but that seems to be, I mean, there was obvious respect and affection between Groucho and Gleason. And as you say, Matthew, I think also that 
prestige of some of the rest of the cast and the director might have had something to do with it. And the price, Groucho apparently did five days work for $25,000. And Gleason, similarly, it's funny how um, how brazen a lot of these uh, old hands were when asked, why did you do this? They so often they say, oh, the money, I did it for the money. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Gleason, Gleason in one interview, uh, he says, um, I couldn't resist the deal on Skidoo. I'm getting my expenses and 5% of the gross until the movie is paid off, then 10% of everything after that. <laughs> wow. That was forthcoming. I wish, I wish actors these days would be that honest. I think you, you've, I've found a lot that actors who are friends do a movie together, not because the script seems good or anything, but just like, oh, it'd be fun to like hang out together. So I think this was in that vein, but it it's hilarious to me that perhaps Groucho showed up expecting to be hanging out with Jackie Gleason and he had already rapped. Yeah. <laughs> there is yeah. a lovely story um, along those lines, uh, which I'm sure you've heard, but uh, Michael Caine was asked uh, what he thought of Jaws the Revenge. And he said, I've never seen the film, but I, I have seen the house it paid for. And that's lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've also heard oh. Michael Caine say that there's nothing more fun than making a bad movie, which is an interesting observation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's different from, you know, it is for these actors, and sometimes it is more about the experience doing it, you know, because it can be such a grind than the actual quality of the work, <laughs> as we've seen time and time again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the director of Skidoo and the producer is Otto Preminger, who's a, a formidable figure in his own right. Um, he seems to have had some rapport with Groucho. I think Groucho's yes had at least something to do with Preminger. Um, he was born in 1905 in what was then Austria-Hungary and is now part of Ukraine. Um, he had a theatrical background in Europe. It came to Hollywood in the 30s, initially as a kind of poor man's Lubitsch, um, an actor slash director um, who played a lot of small roles, played Nazis in a lot of films because of his accent, um, and then eventually became a prestige director. Uh, Laura, 1944, probably the masterpiece. Uh, but there's a lot of other interesting and occasionally great films in his resume. Uh, Anatomy of a Murder is a big one. He also like yeah. flirted with controversy a lot. He had an appetite for for the controversial and for uh, shattering norms. Um, he directed the first film to really deal with heroin addiction, The Man with the Golden Arm, confronted homosexuality in a franker-than-usual-for-the-time way in Advise and Consent, um, and often would get publicity for including one controversial word in a film, the word virginity in The Moon is Blue in 1953 and the word contraceptive in Anatomy of a Murder uh, all, all got those films banned in certain cities. So Skidoo may have played into his appetite for controversy. Um, any uh, feelings about Preminger? I think it's surprising, really, when you look at his filmography, that he that he is um, a particularly uh, luminous and, and lingering figure. Because there's you know there's not a lot there, really. I, I don't think. I mean, uh, Anatomy of a Murder, obviously. Um, Laura, I like same as anyone else, but that was really. Ruben Mamoulian's film, wasn't it? Ruben Mamoulian prepped it and he kind of came in at 11.59 and it's kind of director proof, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but um, 
yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of a lot of kind of misfires, a lot of things that aimed high and 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 didn't make it. Um, Groucho was quite quite uh, did speak quite well of him sort of before the film and while he was making it, but afterwards, uh, Rex Reed asked him uh, what what he thought of Otto Preminger, and Groucho said, "I think he's a big, tall, fat man, but I don't think he should be directing pictures. He doesn't know a thing about them." Um, my favourite <laughs> Preminger anecdote, which I think I've probably said before at least once, but it is it is great, so I'll I'll share it again. Uh, the actress Lala Ward was working on on. Uh, one of his films, and she said uh, a, a small part actress kind of sidled up to him and said, Gee, Mr. Preminger, what's your sign? And he said, It is a do not disturb sign. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think he looms larger as a personality, maybe. He's sort of this classic image of the director of that time, you know, just like bald and strict and kind of like a a Nazi on the set, you know? <laughs> and so I think because of that, he looms large. But I do remember in film school, like they when they were teaching sort of the history of film, like the moon is blue loomed really large because it was like the beginning of the takedown of the Hayes Code. And, and so I think... I think that's a big part of his legacy as well. That that he was re- he really was pushing the boundaries in that way, and then and, and I think this movie is kind of a guy who was meaningful at some point, and he's straining to like, what boundaries can I push now? You know, and just like they're clearly kind of out of touch at this point. I feel like. Yeah, I think you're right about him as a personality. And directors often acquire more stature when their faces and voices are known to the public as Hitchcock's were, you know. And Preminger is one of uh, four people we'll discuss today who um, are known from the Batman TV series, too. He was was Mr. (laughs) Freeze. So there's that. It seems like often it's qualities of the films rather than the films themselves are what he gets attention for and makes history for uh, the controversial stuff mentioned earlier as you say the breakdown of the Hayes code or uh, working um openly with Dalton Trumbo and sort of ending the blacklist um on uh, Exodus and I think one other film he made with Trumbo um so he's without question an interesting figure um and I think Skidoo shows um he is a he's a competent director and he's a thoughtful director I mean um, the film, as we'll see, it, it certainly has its its hit and miss quality, um, but it's not thoughtless. And in a way, you know, you would expect a film like this to feel sort of tossed off casually. It's it's actually a very fussy film um, that feels like an incredible amount of technical thought has gone into it, and maybe it's overburdened even by directorial uh, vision. I think it's certainly fair to say, isn't it, that if you haven't seen it, it's probably not going to be the film you think it's going to be. Um, in particular, the first half is quite—it's quite mainstream, isn't it? It's very—it's very tightly plotted, and it's—it's it's, it, you know, there's there's a lot going on, and it's only when it kind of goes haywire halfway through that it even begins to be the film that it's reputed to be. I think. Yeah. I'll I'll say that yeah, having seen it for the first time for this, and having only really seen the trailer, and obviously that it's kind of a punchline, you know, among Marx Brothers fans, I was surprised by like the quality of the production, and that it was like a competent. I mean, it 
believe me, there's lots of issues with it, but it's a competently made film. It's like I was pleasantly surprised. I was expecting it to be more ragtag and just like a mess. Like you watch the trailer and you think like, oh my gosh, they clearly had no movie at all to promote. So what, you know, but, but it's, it's a movie and it's a story and it's like the production values are high. So I I have to say I was pleasantly surprised by that aspect that it's like, oh, this is a real, this is an actual movie. It's not some, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the trailer makes it look like they had nothing. <laughs> yeah, that that trailer is strange. Yeah. We might as well talk about that for a moment. The, the trailer, which consists mostly of testimonials from people not involved in the film or <laughs> largely, and they all seem to be standing maybe in Otto Preminger's living room, like in front of a, a bookshelf. Yeah, he like dr- and dragged them there and said, say something good about my movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. is in there saying, uh, if you don't like this movie, you don't like chicken on Sunday. Mm. Well, I I have to contradict Sammy because I <laughs> love chicken on Sunday. <laughs> uh, now to get into another subject, which is part of this film, and it's maybe the first thing most people associate with it. Um, that trailer also features some testimonials from Dr. Timothy Leary, uh, author, psychologist, and uh, advocate for the use of psychoactive drugs. Uh, Richard Nixon, the most dangerous man in America, called him the most dangerous man in America. Uh, I wonder if uh, any of us have ever met Timothy Leary. I have met Timothy Leary. No kidding. <laughs> what? Well, what the coincidence? Um, it's actually like I was super young. Early in my career, I was an intern at a production company. And every year, Keith Addis who was like this big time manager threw a big Hollywood party at his house and the interns were invited. So, so it was a very exciting moment. You know, I'm, I don't know how old I was, 24 or something. And, um, and invited to this party and it's like Barbara Streisand. I've like brushed up against Barbara Streisand and you know, there's all these celebs everywhere, but I was really too shy. I think I briefly spoke with Buck Henry, who was like a super, you know, a hero of mine and just said, I think you're the best. And, and, but, but I was really too shy to talk to anyone. And so I ended up on the balcony with another intern who somehow was friends with Timothy Leary. So he was there just hanging out. He's like in his seventies at this point and on the, just hanging out most of the party with Timothy Leary as he pontificated with his like clearly acid addled brain, you know, (laughs) on culture and politics and, and, uh, and we all just sort of were just like, Hmm, and nodding, you know, as he was going on and on. And then at one point he just unzips his pants and takes a leak off the edge of the balcony in in into the into Laurel Canyon, and uh, I think that's when I decided. Oh, it's I think it's time to go home. <laughs> I've had enough of this party. But um, the evening has peaked. But, yeah, I think like two or three years later, he passed away. But anyway, that's my Timothy Leary experience. And so it's like kids don't do drugs. <laughs> Stay off of the drugs. It's interesting as well, isn't it? He was um, Winona Ryder's godfather, and uh, she recalled him as as nothing at all like that. Just as a very dear, sweet, kind man who who you know took her under his wing and 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 was adorable. Basically, she was with him when he died and uh, had nothing but good things to say about him. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he was sweet and gentle, but he was just, you know, he was making no sense. <laughs> is my main point. I, I don't think there was a mean bone in his body, but I don't think there was much in his brain either <laughs> at that point. Yes, moderation and all things. Other than things he there. put there himself. <laughs> Well, uh, as as we're we're dancing around the point here, um, LSD is a big part of the plotline of Skidoo. It's often characterized as an LSD comedy, a, a drug comedy. I, I think that might be overstating it a bit, but LSD does play a role in the plot and in two of the major sequences in the movie. It, interestingly, LSD was declared illegal in the United States just a couple of months before Skidoo was released. It was a really oh. occurrent subject at the time. Um, partly people were hearing about it from Timothy Leary, but also from people like the Beatles. You know, it had entered the mainstream. Um, it was a fairly new drug that had been uh, synthesized in the 30s, but not until um, the 50s and 60s were medical experiments uh, going on and uh, it begins to be widespread as a recreational drug in the 60s. And then it becomes this flashpoint in the culture war. Um, it's declared a Schedule One narcotic, and all medical research ends immediately. And many people feel that uh, at that time, um, they were close to some breakthroughs uh, using it um, as a treatment for anxiety and depression, as well as alcoholism and, interestingly, drug dependence, um, that you could use LSD um, to get off of other drugs. Um, but as is often the case, as soon as a drug is um, criminalized, um, any any possible benefits that it might have to offer uh, get taken off the table. But it was certainly a, a very current thing to make a movie about in 1968 or to include in a movie. And Roger Ebert's review of Skidoo says, oh, we have, you know, the usual psychedelic sequence, you know, indicating that it was a big thing at this time in films. And I think about even things like the um, the boat ride in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, there are always these flashing colored <laughs> light sequences in late 60s, early 70s films. Yeah, it's Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy. Like, those are great movies that used used them. But yeah, I think they're all over the all over the place at this point. Yeah, I can see why it was attractive to filmmakers to try to um, depict a, a hallucinogenic experience. Um, you know, that just opens up visual possibilities that aren't there in, a, in a, the usual film. And hadn't Preminger dropped acid? I mean, wasn't this like a result? Like he had tried it, I guess, and had an experience and so. Yeah, apparently. So like, I must make a movie about this. <laughs> yeah, Preminger told reporters that he had tripped on acid with Timothy Leary um, in preparation for oh. the film. Uh, according to Preminger, uh, he was joined on this trip by Dr. Leary, an Indian. He's no more specific than that, but <laughs> an Indian was there. Geraldo Mose. <laughs> and yeah. also uh, a girl named Peggy Hitchcock, he says. Pe Peggy Hitchcock was one of the heirs to the Mellon fortune and part of Leary's circle and uh, one of these kind of psychedelic mm. pioneers. Um Preminger said the trip lasted 18 hours and everyone, especially my wife, got smaller and smaller. 
That's classic. That's a classic director's view of the world. <laughs> I think <laughs> everyone got smaller and smaller. And that does yeah. happen in the film. When it's me that got bigger, you know. <laughs> yes. The rest of the boy, that's interesting. Have you two ever partaken? I have. I, I have. I mean, yeah. N- not recently, wow. uh, but when in my uh, in my early twenties, yes, I was really interested in psychoactive drugs and especially in their creative possibilities. Um, I think I kind of got everything I could from them at the time and sort of got out okay. But but yeah, and I think um, some of the things that Preminger says about LSD in interviews seems to me to get closer to what the experience is really like than anything in the movie. Uh, in, in one interview, uh, Preminger says, it's an amazing feeling. You are completely aware. It's not like having a drink which dulls your senses. Your senses are sharper. You find everything amusing. It's like standing next to yourself and watching what you're doing. Uh, that that rings a little truer for me than um, mm. anything in the film. Uh, what about you, Matthew? Did you see Groucho's head on a screw? I, I didn't see Groucho's head on the screw, but I did watch Room Service, and I did. Um, <laughs> I did have to under the influence. Yes, I did, and. The line, um, get that banana out of your mouth, which is purely a, um, a you know, a, a, not a joke. It is, it is, just, yeah. it is just a lie. Uh, did make me laugh for about 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I don't want to get the bog us down telling drug stories, but I, I remember be, be, being what? with a group of people and we were all outside at night in New York and I, I was like, sort of giving up leading everyone on this mind tour and uh, I was getting everyone to stare at a traffic light and we were all just lost and you know the just the beautiful uh, red glow of this traffic light and then when it changed colors everyone screamed it was so startling <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so there's a rumor that Groucho right there's a, there was that article about Groucho dropping acid which has always felt I don't know. Has that been debunked? Is that real? What's the what's the deal with that? Well, I um actually investigated that when I was writing the uh, my Groucho book, and yeah, I yeah. should say that I that I had no absolutely no ideological emotional investment in it. Um, I didn't want it to be true because I love drugs and I like the idea of Groucho being one hep cat, and I didn't want it. <laughs> To not be true because I hate drugs and I didn't want Groucho to be uh, one hep cat. But <laughs> the conclusion I came to was that it wasn't true um, for for mm. three reasons. The first one was what we know about Groucho, which is that around this time before the big college revival, he was pretty down on the counterculture. He was pretty down on on modernity in general. I think to to such a degree that if anything, it's a surprise that he even made the movie. Um, now, I appreciate that could be seen as a point for the opposition. You know, it, it, he, you wouldn't have thought he made the movie, but he did. So maybe in that same frame of mind, you know, he. but I think he made the movie for the reasons that I said earlier that he made the movie. I don't think he really looked into it, uh, what it was about at all. Um, so I don't I don't think that's a, a point really for the other side. Um, we know for certain that he, he was not into intoxication, that he didn't even drink to excess. And in fact, I think we've said before that it's actually quite surprising that none of the brothers seem to have had any kind of anecdotes of of alcoholic excess. 
um, even at their youngest and most irresponsible. It doesn't seem to have been a particular part of their world. I'm not aware of any uh, prohibition-related anecdotes involving them and, and drinking. Um, Frank Ferranti told me that uh, Arthur told him that he only saw Groucho drunk once in his entire life, and that was after Chico's funeral. So, you know, hmm. um, it's strong, you know, he's really, he's not the type. Um, but even more than that, I think you, you get the impression with Groucho that he found the company of drunks repulsive, uh, that that was a big problem, uh, particularly with, with his marriages breaking down. And you almost sense a kind of a fear of intoxication with him, a fear um, of the loss of control, the loss of dignity. That comes over very strongly in the Love Groucho letters between Groucho and Miriam, who uh, spent a lot of her adult life having, having issues uh, with, with alcohol and, and, and substances and things. Um, and of course, in in the late 1960s, he would have been well aware of the uh, scare stories of uh, people under the influence of LSD, not only behaving irresponsibly but behaving fatally irresponsibly. Um, so, so I think he would have actually been been genuinely scared, even if he was curious to try it. Um, it is worth adding as well that that everyone who had any contact with him who who has given an opinion on this uh, regardless of which side of the aisle they're on generally uh, with drugs uh, are all of the opinion not that they doubt it but that it didn't happen um, that's certainly what John Tefteller thinks uh, it's what Steve Stolia thinks Steve Stolia said to me um, it's not just my lone observation. I've never found anyone in a position to have an informed opinion about Groucho's behaviour who thought it happened. So that's, that's one reason. The second reason is the internal evidence of the, uh, of the anecdote itself. Um, I don't know, I can't remember if uh, Krasner says in his article how big of a dose he gave him. But we're looking at a man pushing 80, uh, not especially robust, who'd never used hallucinogens before, um, whose body wasn't even uh, habituated to the effects of alcoholic intoxication. I doubt he would be saying anything coherent at all. I think he would be, uh, you know, huddled in the corner of the room watching watching the cushions change size. Um, if... If he had said something, though, I, I would like to think it would be something more interesting than the uh, terribly generic uh, trippy drivel that uh, that um, that Krasner attributes to him. <laughs> Stuff like, oh, that's funny, I'm not even sad. Or, uh, <laughs> or every, every poison is a goddamn miracle. Um <laughs> <laughs> or um, or, or oh God, sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to do this voice anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so like Christopher Lloyd in Taxi. Um, <laughs> he, he says, um, supposedly he said, everybody has their own Laurel and Hardy, a miniature Laurel and Hardy, one on each shoulder, uh, which which sent me to my bookshelves because I remembered that uh, the philosopher Colin Wilson wrote uh, an article about bicameral mentality called the Laurel and Hardy theory of consciousness uh, and this article um, he then incorporated into a book he wrote called the, the quest for Wilhelm Reich in 1981 and in 1981 uh, was when Krasner uh, published his article telling that story and we know that Krasner had read that book because he talks about it in a book of his own uh, later on and it just seems uncannily similar to me here is a little extract of Colin Wilson 
Wilson talking about his Laurel and Hardy theory of consciousness on an American cable TV program. Mozart said that tunes were always walking into his head fully fledged, so he just had to write them down. Now, where did they come from, obviously? That other self in the right brain. And they walked into the place where Mozart lived. Now, if Mozart was a split-brain patient, so we all. We all have two hemispheres, of course, to our brain. And what's more, they're totally disconnected. Mm -hmm. Disconnected to such an extent that we're not even aware that we have this other person living in the other hemisphere. Now, when I began writing a book about Wilhelm Reich, I realized that, in fact, these two were exactly the same as Laurel and Hardy in the old movies, and that the person living in the other hemisphere is, in fact, Stan, Stan Laurel. He's the one who sends up all the energy. Ollie is the living you. And somehow they're like lumberjacks at either end of a double-handed saw whose business is to collaborate. If you can once actually get the collaboration of Stan in the other hemisphere, everything is fine. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe uh, well-known uh, comedy icons of the 1930s do refer to other well-known comedy icons <laughs> of the 1930s in, in that kind of casual, <laughs> metaphorical way that we civilians might. I suspect uh, if Laurel and Hardy meant anything to Groucho, they would have meant a couple of pros who he, who he occasionally met and, and uh, slightly worked with. Um, so I suspect that we're looking at Krasner's invention here, and that's my third reason for disbelieving it, which is what we know about about Krasner himself. He was somebody who was known uh, as somebody who, who uh, liked to uh, inject untruths into the public discourse uh, <laughs> for, 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 the, for the fun of it. Um, there's um, a 1975 interview he gave for We magazine, uh, which was in fact titled Paul Krasner Lies Sometimes. Uh, and in that interview, um, he talks about dropping acid with famous people. And he says he dropped acid with the Manson family. Uh, but tellingly, he makes no mention of Groucho there at all. Groucho mm. at that time was, of course, still alive. So, no, I, I don't believe it. We did, uh, in fairness, we did uh, contact Krasner uh, to get his side of it, which was much easier then than it would be now and he did stand by it completely and say it was it was completely true but i don't believe it <laughs> i don't believe it either matthew you've convinced me <laughs> me too that's a, that's an excellent act of debunking matthew and uh, i just want to add to the pile of evidence there though that in the film groucho doesn't do acid his character isn't involved in the acid part of the story and so it's mm. it's really a stretch to think, even if being in a movie about acid did move Groucho to want to try it, it wouldn't factor into his role at all. It's it, it makes no sense. Yeah. And he doesn't seem like the an actor prepares type. <laughs> like like oh, to really get deep into this, I should drop acid myself. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I don't think he was invested in his character that much. Uh, neither was Jackie Gleason. Um, in an interview, Otto Preminger was asked if he encouraged Gleason to try acid. Now, in the movie, Gleason actually does acid, um, and uh, but Preminger's response was, Gleason, you can't even get him to try water. He sticks to scotch. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. We should talk about the film Skidoo. Uh, we've already touched on some of this, but I, I, I want to start with general impressions and, um, and Cinco, I know this was your first uh, viewing of Skidoo, but, uh, what is your, in a nutshell, impression of the film? 
Yeah, my overall feeling is this is a comedy made by someone for whom comedy is a foreign language. And it, it was just, there's, like, wackiness is not comedy. And and all, all of the elements that make for a comedy, like, none of them are in this. It's sort of, it is, it's like someone from a, another planet trying to make a comedy, having, you know, an idea of, like, oh, if this happens and this happens and this happens, that's comedy. But but it's not. And, and you look at Preminger's career, right? That's not, you know... That's not what he was known for. And so, so to me, that's what this felt like mostly. Like, I, I don't think there was a genuine laugh in there for me. I mean, maybe the one thing I liked, and it's the, like the Groucho's last line in the movie, there was like comp- comedic timing there with the way he says pumpkin. <laughs> At the, at the end, very end after his like like that was i think the only time i laughed in the whole thing and not that it was like un- an unpleasant movie but it's just it's it was a weird attempt at a comedy by someone who has no idea how to make a comedy that's that's my overall impression i think there is what there was what i did spot one kind of marx brothers ish semi-joke in it which i hadn't spotted before partly because groucho completely undersells it but it it is a joke i think and it is quite funny uh when he's trying to trying to seduce the daughter he offers her a drink and she says no so he offers a a jacket potato with um with what is it baked potato Um, with sour cream he says they're good baked potato with sour cream yeah that's that's quite (laughs) that's his next tactic with the drink having failed he offers her a baked potato with sour cream uh but that was all. <laughs> and he has a, a slightly amusing line, I think, when he's talking about um, Angie, the, the role played by Frankie Avalon. And he says, oh, it's that Angie. He's a bright kid, but stupid. You know, Bright kid, but stupid. Not the greatest joke ever written, but it, it's a joke. Other than that, you know, I, the, now the role that Groucho plays, which is a mob boss named God... And the publicity materials for the film make a lot of the idea that Groucho Marx plays God in this movie, setting up expectations, yeah. uh, you know, we can only wish were met. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, it, it, his, his funniest line is really in the trailer when he says, I laugh my head off. So if you see a man walking around without his head, that's me. I, I, again, not the funniest thing Groucho ever said, but. Yeah, I mean, I will say for me, I I was puzzling. I mean, it was fun to see him. And he was actually, apart from this like long extended scene where he's clearly reading cue cards and, you know, not he looked like a bad guest host of SNL, you know, uh, in a a sketch. But but like it was fun to see him in the grease paint. And, you know, he sounds like his old self. And and there was fun to be had or pleasures to be had watching him do what I thought. And then that, that last one, he says pumpkin at the end, it was like, Oh, that was the great Groucho timing and delivery, you know, just like at the perfect moment after he took the drag on the, on the pot, he uh, delivers that line. So it wasn't like I was watching. It wasn't like, you know, some of these sad performer, like jaws. What was it? Oh yes. Joy. The Bob Hope. Yeah. Right. It wasn't like you're trotting out something that was sad. Yeah. It wasn't, I didn't feel sad or, or uncomfortable in any way. Yeah. I think another surprise, if you haven't seen it, um, is that he is in very 
good, sprightly physical form. If you're only familiar with the old Groucho from the kind of evening with Groucho era, uh, here he is, you know, only only a few years off that, but I, I guess crucially pre-stroke. Um, and, you know, he, he, he is in, he's in very good physical shape. He's moving about the set, you know, in, in a very sprightly way uh, and gives a performance, I think, that is, that is um, as good as, as that script could possibly allow. Yeah, and it did make me think, like, how with, with like good material, like he could have like throughout the sixties, like put in some great performances and some really good movies. You know, yeah. I think I think he still could have could have done that because he was sharp and funny and fun to watch. He still, it's like his personality came through, and so it was sort of sad that like this is all we got. It seems like it wouldn't have taken much to make it into a little more of a showcase for him. Um, and there was a lot of speculation about this role before it was cast. Um, and some of the names that were bandied about as possibilities were uh, political figures like Pierre Salinger and Everett Dirksen, uh, John Wayne, who owned the yacht that some of the film was shot on, uh, was considered for the, the role, or at least talked about, and Preminger himself uh, threatened to take the role. But once they cast Groucho, it just seems like, yeah, give him a few jokes, you know. Rob Reiner apparently did a polish on the screenplay, but didn't help Groucho out in that department. And especially as Groucho's scenes are, for the most part, extremely self-contained, aren't they? They're, they're in that in that one little room with just him and a couple of other people. You would have think they could have kind of just workshopped it a bit you know yeah and it's 45 or 50 minutes before he even appears i th i think it's it's like a long time coming <laughs> it's and, a lot like uh, iceman cometh they talk about him for an hour before he <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a very anticipated yeah, waiting entrance. for godot yeah. when is god gonna show up <laughs> that's right but I love all that stuff at the start that imply, you know, he's just being played, uh, sold as this this typical menacing gang boss. You know, like, you, you don't keep God waiting. God wants to see you. You know, you think, <laughs> who, who's this guy going to be? Ah, oh, it's Groucho, with a, with, complete with moustache. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, his his look is very strange in the film, too. I mean, it's really something to see him back in the old grease paint. Um, and they've darkened his hair and filled it out and stuff. But I, I feel like if they were going to do that, why didn't they go all the way to his earlier costume and look, if that was the idea? It's a little strange because he has lines about being old, you know? He's supposed to be an old man. He's supposed to be, in some sense, God. It almost seems like it would have made more sense to make him look older and give him, like, long white hair and, a, a you know... <laughs> A long white beard. Maybe. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just that making him into his younger self seems like a particularly odd choice for this role. It is interesting, isn't it? Because just a few, you know, only a few years earlier, I think they would have still been going for the "You Bet Your Life" Groucho as as the image, the reference point. Yeah. So uh, time has just shifted just enough here, I think, to for people to want that Groucho back. But yeah, why not do the eyebrows as well, and and you know, go go, go the whole way. Yeah. Like I don't know what Preminger was thinking or what the idea was, but you but bringing in all these old Hollywood like Mickey Rooney and George Raft and you know, um, I don't know if that that was like some sort of intentional culture clash he was trying to portray, but but it did feel I don't you know I'm trying to think what else like it's a mad 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 world or something you know it like felt like it was in that vein somehow that that 
Like, look at all these familiar old faces, you know. But it's also a bit like Story of Mankind, isn't it? I think, yeah. you know, the, those old those older guys weren't m- working much. So I think you could you could get them for reasonable rates, particularly if, as was the case with all of them and the, and the Story of Mankind guys, that you are, you only have them working for a few days, um, and you've you've got instant big names. Yeah, it's a little like funny. like that mo- the monkeys movie Head, right? Because Skidoo has. Frankie Valley and and Head has Annette Funicello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or Frankie Avalon, you mean? Right, and it's sort of like Head. Obviously, I think a more genuine, real, like pe- written by produced by people more in touch with the counterculture with with Bob Raffleson and Nicholson. But uh, you know what? It also like felt like to me in a way was these the Disney Kurt Russell movies. <laughs> <laughs> like like super dad kind of you know which is this is like bob crane coming up against the <laughs> counterculture and hippies it just it had a little bit of of that vibe to it unfortunately it does have a, a remarkable cast and it's one of those movies that uh, if you just read the cast list to somebody they will assume that it's if not great, at least worth watching. Which, which actually, maybe you could argue that it, it is worth watching. Um, but yeah, it's an unbelievable list of not only big stars but unlikely combinations of big stars, um, in, including the, the those uh, Cinco just named. Um, Carol Channing um, has one of the big roles in this film. She's billed second yeah. after Gleason. Um, and uh, for me, her performance is one of the things that really works about the movie. It, she, and maybe she alone, seems to kind of be in the correct spirit. She's kind of halfway between doing this kind of conservative housewife type character and this it's <laughs> crazy Carol Channing um, character sympathetic to the counterculture. Um, she's just the right weirdness it seems for this movie and uh i also think her delivery of the title song is kind of triumphant at the end um yeah for me that was like the only part really of the movie that worked for me is and it made me wish oh i wish they'd made it a musical because because that was so joyful and fun and interesting when she comes in and sings that it's at the very end of the movie sings yeah. that harry nilsson song skidoo it was like this is really fun. Like the spirit of this, and and I, I'm looking at Matthew. I don't know if Matthew agrees with me, but but uh, <laughs> but for me, it was like the movie sort of came alive in those last five minutes with with that song. And this is like, ah, oh, I wish we'd had more of that because I agree with you, Noah. She's like delightful to watch in every scene, sort of like the seduction scene with Frankie, yeah, Avalon, and yeah. She's hilarious, and and she's um, yeah. She, I think one of the things that I always like about her is the passionate way she commits to the silliest material. You know, I mean, she sings the song "Skidoo" as though it's the national anthem. You know, uh, she's just all in. I also think it's kind of hilarious that you know when she arrives at the boat at the end, dressed as some kind of pirate singing this song and and uh, she winds up face to face with Jackie Gleason who immediately says where's god <laughs> i just think it's on one hand this is i do think that's an entertaining sequence and a rare example of this film achieving some momentum it's also just so funny that this is Otto Preminger's idea of like a counterculture comedy carol channing as a singing pirate you know <laughs> um 
Could I just introduce a note of dissent here? Um, yeah. Oh, Matthew. I, I, must, I must admit first that this is the only thing I've seen her in. Uh, so, so I've got nothing else to compare it with. But, but I did find in particular that scene where she, she comes up onto the ship dressed as a pirate singing and then advances on Gleason while saying skidoo. Skidoo um, was the worst part of the film and the only time I was really, really having trouble with it. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, come on, Matthew. That was the only time you were having trouble with this movie? Serious trouble, yeah. Wow. The only part I enjoyed. <laughs> I am sorry. This did come out right in the middle of the uh, the, the Channing era. She um, she had won the Tony for Hello, Dolly in 1964, um, a role she returned to as recently as 1995 on Broadway. Yeah. Um, and the year before Skidoo, she had won the Golden Globe and been nominated for an Oscar for Thoroughly Modern Millie. Um, so she was a big kind of box office star at the time this came out. Uh, unquestionably weird and also a strange pairing with Gleason. I mean, she and Gleason don't seem <laughs> very much like a married couple. <laughs> no. Is she still alive? No, she died fairly recently. Um, uh, yeah, uh, pretty recently. She's definitely an acquired taste and very specific. That's a crazy. She was nominated for an Oscar for Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yeah. I love Thoroughly Modern Millie, by the way, but but um, yeah, Matthew, I can understand. <laughs> like, if you don't know Carol Channing, or I don't know, I just found it joyous and fun. There was a there was a life in it that I think was missing from a lot of the movie, but but I can understand you saying like, what <laughs> is happening? Are there any other performances in the film that uh, either of you uh, think are successful? Any any high points there? Always good to see Richard Keel in a movie. Yes. <laughs> Halfway between Egar and The Spy You Love Me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and Austin Pendleton, who I love in What's Up, Doc, yes. and, you know... Uh, um, and the front page. And the front page, and uh, I've always loved him, and it's like, this, I guess, was his first movie they made him shave his head for it yeah poor guy um but he's always uh, he's in the muppet movie as well delightful um he was the original model in fiddler on the roof right so it was it was a real it was delightful to see like i went into it not knowing that he was in the movie and it's like oh there's austin pendleton that's fun so he was fun to watch there's also a lovely actress who's got a strange name that I can't remember, so I will look it up in a moment, um, but you might know it, uh, who isn't in a lot of things, uh, always in small roles, but she's always a treat, and she plays the mayor at the start of this film. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I thought that was Margaret Hamilton for a second. So, but yeah. Uh, Doro Morand is her name. Or, That's yeah. the one, yeah. she's um, Preminger used her a few times, so she, you know, he obviously liked her. Also, uh, Billy Wilder used her about three or four times. She's the waitress in... Uh, uh, seven year itch that that tries to get uh, him to uh, uh, donate money to to naturism uh she's she's great um, and just to make sure we mention some of these names uh, our our other batman villains are burgess meredith who has uh, a small part as a warden in the jail um caesar romero uh, who's one of the gangsters um, gangster yeah uh, council member Tristan Yance pointed out that um, in this film, Groucho has 
a painted on mustache over a real mustache, which Cesar Romero was famous for doing that on the Batman series, having white pancake makeup over oh, his oh, mustache. Right, over his mustache, yes. <laughs> so uh, you think this yeah. was because Preminger? Oh, go ahead, because there's one more, Gorshin. Oh, right? yeah, and Frank Gorshin, yeah. So we have like, they're, th- they're the three main Batman villains. It's Joker, Riddler, and the Penguin. Penguin, yeah. And so do you think it was because, I mean, obviously he didn't, I don't know if he ever, Preminger ever interacted with them when he was on this show, but it it's, it feels too crazy to be a coincidence. It does. And it, it was very current. Like the Batman series was 66 to 68. I think it had really just ended when Skidoo went into production. Yeah. Maybe he was a fan of the show. Or maybe it's just that they, you know, they were the older guys who were, who were kind of on the casting directors list in the same way that in the seventies, you know, like you always see Donna Michi in TV movies or um, Ida Lupino or Sylvia Sidney, yeah. who's in like every other TV movie. They they just obviously had like the the kind of agents that were still putting them out. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, willing to work. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they had they had answer phones that said, "I'm not in at the moment, but I'll do it." <laughs> <laughs> and another boldface name who is in the cast has a, a small role in the film, but has a larger role as the film's uh, songwriter and composer is Harry Nilsson. Um, Nilsson, uh, I read, was really excited to work with Jackie Gleason, who he regarded as something of a hero, and was a little heartbroken by Gleason's. Um, indifference to him uh gleason for reasons i don't know uh referred to nilson as Clamhead on the set of skidoo <laughs> Clamhead, uh, and in the uh playboy after dark appearance with preminger and nilson that you shared with us cinco um i picked up on a certain amount of good-natured ribbing of harry nilson uh, preminger says to him at one point you have a gift to really annoy me there was a little there was an exchange that felt very groucho actually because because preminger says of nilsen like he was in my last film and then nilsen said it may be your last film yeah <laughs> and it's like that good. felt very groucho like and then preminger felt like he was like a little unhappy with <laughs> with, with nilsen that that jab from nilsen but I think it's, I'm a huge Nilsson fan. I love love him and his music. And it's really interesting that he was drafted to do the songs in this because he really, I think, at this point, was not known much outside the music industry. He hadn't, you know, because uh, uh, everybody's talking was the next year from, you know, in Midnight Cowboy and then... Oh, was that him? Yeah, yeah. And he didn't write uh, the song. Never knew that. Yeah, and then also that I Can't Live If Living Is Without You, uh, yeah. you know. That was also his hit, but his biggest hit maybe was Coconut. You put the lime in the coconut and drink it. That was, he wrote and and uh, sang that song. But he was sort of this upcoming singer, songwriter in the 60s. He wrote songs for other people, like One is the Loneliest Number is a song he wrote for Three Dog, that Three Dog Night recorded. And he wrote several songs for the Monkees. But anyway, yeah, I was really, and the point, right? There was the animated. I don't know if you're, anyone's familiar with that. There's the, the big song from it, "Me and My Arrow." Oh. From the point, nobody knows the point. Oh, that sounds familiar. This delightful but no. animated. Yeah, he. It was a concept album he did, and then uh, they made it into a, an animated uh, special. Anyway, Harry Nilsson. Everybody should look up Harry Nilsson because he's he's pretty amazing. But uh, 
But who knows, like how he came in contact with Preminger? But but he refers to Preminger as sort of a father figure in that Playboy After Dark thing. So somehow Preminger must have taken him under his wing. Or yeah, they're very comfortable knows? and jokey together. And I yeah, I, I yeah. guess I would have to call myself a new fan of Nilsson's. I. I, I like his contributions to Skidoo. I think the music is one of the good things about the film. Um, I especially like that sort of peppery title song. Um, and, yeah. and a lot of the scoring in the film is, is I think, pretty good, too. Um, I must confess, I've been unfairly judging Harry Nilsson all these years by um, a lifelong familiarity with one specific thing that he worked on, which I now... Not Son of Dracula. no. <laughs> Not that no. <laughs> son of Dracula, yeah. Have, yeah. have you seen that? No, it's it's Nilsson has, has count down over the hilarity, <laughs> and uh, and Ringo Starr as Merlin. It, it is on YouTube, and if and if you thought Skidoo was hard to sit okay. through, <laughs> no, for me it's the songs in Robert Altman's live action film version of Popeye. Um, uh, what you don't. Lo- Harry oh Nilsson wrote wrote those songs, and and yeah, I've always I've always considered it almost it that seems to me a sort of willfully bad set of songs, and uh, his uh, I just always connected his name with them, um, and I've been aware like oh people have a lot of respect for Harry Nilsson. Um, there obviously is more to him than that song Sweet Haven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so uh, and and just kind of cramming for this, I realize I've I've been missing out on a, a great body of work by. Um, but I, I what I'm picking up from you, Cinco, is that I I'm uh, I, this is not necessarily a, a majority opinion about the songs in Popeye either. Well, yeah, I mean, I I like the songs in Popeye. I'm particularly he needs me, he needs me, he needs me. That Shelley Duvall sings as Olive yeah. Oil, I think is is a really good song. I mean. Popeye is not a successful film, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I mean, I think he's worth it. Like, if you could look into his like late sixties, early seventies stuff, it's really charming and and uh, smart and delightful. And he and he and John Lennon became really good friends, and he and Randy Newman were also really good friends. And he's like like um like musicians' favorite. The song, you know, it's sort of he—he he never had big mainstream success, but but the Beatles loved him, and Randy Newman loved him. You know, was he was that sort of artist? Yeah, I I think I'm on board, and certainly his music has been in my head a lot this week, uh, and I've been listening to the Skidoo soundtrack and stuff, you know. Um, so yeah, I'm pr- fully prepared to eat my words. Maybe I even need to revisit the songs in Popeye, but uh, I always thought they'd just like repeating the title over and over again, like the title of the song eight (laughs) times and then a key change and then (laughs) repeat the title eight more times. Well, I, you know, I know Matthew was probably reluctant to explore more music by Harry Nilsson based on the the song (laughs) Skidoo, but um, it's, it's worth, it's worth checking them out. Uh, well, for its first half, uh, it seems to me that film sort of has moments of what might play as interesting social satire in more assured hands. Like there's never the sense that there's a, a great satirical mind at work and that you're going along with someone's vision. But occasionally a little piece of material bubbles to the surface, 
Um, for example, in the opening sequence, changing channels on the TV, you know, you can see this attempt to kind of show a portrait of the culture by by flipping through network television. And some of those commercial parodies are interesting. And Nilsson wrote the music for some of those too. And, you know, there's moments where you feel like there's interesting satire at work. Also in the courthouse scene, the Beautify America Get a Haircut campaign and you can sort of see what they're trying to do and, and how it might have been funny. <laughs> what, a, what a quote for the poster. Yeah. <laughs> you can sort of see what they were trying to do. And uh, how it might no, have been funny. it might have been funny. <laughs> uh, but then we get to uh, uh, Jackie Gleason. Um, he's in jail because of numerous plot contrivances and accidentally licks an envelope that the Austin Pendleton character has laced with LSD. Um, and then we get the first of two uh, trippy sequences in the movie. Um, uh, one thing I want to comment on is Gleason's, as we know, uninformed uh, impression of someone tripping on acid, which is... Oh! <laughs> 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 Do we think there's any chance, uh, in fact, that he insisted that if if I'm going to do this on screen, my character has to do it accidentally? Oh. Uh, I'll bet. That could be. But also that's sort of a trope, right? The square person accidentally ingesting drugs. It's sort of... I mean, for me, this whole part of the movie was a drag. It was like the least <laughs> successful. I enjoyed this the least. And it sort of went on forever. Like his his trip and then everybody. And then just the shots of all the prisoners tripping. Like what did that even mean? I don't know. Yeah. I just like it's so tiresome. And I have to say I almost find it tiresome in any movie I see. Like there's they still do it. They're still like they, the, the drug sequence. Yeah. It's still an obligatory scene in so many comedies. I mean... Every decade, it it happens. There's a new version of it, and I almost never like it. And maybe that's because I'm a square, because I'm clearly the only one here who hasn't dropped acid. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I just never find it entertaining. And for me, it's just like it went on forever, and I just was like, please. I was like on a trip that I was like, please, when is this going to end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with that, and and although I I do have uh, some some interest in the responsible and, and moderate use of drugs. Um, I don't think it's ever successful when people try to, you know, depict the, the, the experience of changed consciousness on film or, or e- even really in music or literature. Part of the thing about it is that it doesn't, doesn't make sense outside the head, you know, outside the experience. Yeah. I agree with you. It's, it's, it's not successful. That's why the only example that of, that I like is uh, in, in a film called uh, Gianni e le Donne, uh, Salt of Life, a Gianni Di Gregorio film, where at the end he uh, again accidentally uh, ingests some substances and uh, and has a trip. But it, it it doesn't attempt to depict it. It just shows him hmm. um, just just doing these very kind of monotonous bumbling things, like like um, trying to stop a fountain with his hand or whatever. And he's also <laughs> he's, he's he's got an enormous great big dog with him, and and there's one one scene 
scene where they're just sat in the street and the dog is just in front of him and he's tapping it on its on its shoulder to try and get its attention and the dog ignores him and he, and he just makes a kind of a resigned gesture as if to, as if to say you know what's got into you then you know <laughs> and it's really done really subtly and uh, it's it's lovely but yeah that's the only time Gleason's trip is intercut with Groucho's first scene. This is around the midway point in the movie. And um, when we first meet Groucho, uh, he is uh, doing a scene with uh, this woman, this model named Luna, um, who was um, famously known as the first black supermodel. Um, she's extremely tall and statuesque and uh, in this yes. film has very long, very pointy, very red fingernails. She yeah, also and a very low cut dress on, in the yeah. back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she's wearing a backless dress that goes down to about mid buttock, and it's very disconcerting that Groucho has nothing to say about this. Uh, there's even a scene where she's walking away in front of Groucho, and he kind mm, of looks at her, mm. and you think, "Here we go." I, I, it's amazing <laughs> that there's no remark right there. Surely something could have been done. Yeah, it's curious. Like, what is the relationship? It's not <laughs> clear. She's his mall, I guess. Is that how you pronounce? It? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. She she is billed as his mistress, isn't she? His so, mistress, so, I guess. Yeah. So there is there is in supposedly a you know a, a sexual uh, dimension to it, but uh, as you say, yeah, he's he's very uh, uncharacteristically reticent. Yeah, it's it's not much fun watching him uh, unbutton Alexandra Hayes' coat in a later scene, is it? <laughs> no <laughs> it's not it's interesting isn't it that she's also in Fellini's satiricon which is one of one of the things that he that he turned down oh Luna so is almost, yeah yeah there's a, Fellini said alright if I, if I can't get him I'll, I'll get the next best thing <laughs> right yeah it's like six degrees of separation from Groucho yeah <laughs> and I think that was just the next year uh, yeah that might have been the second of the Groucho and Luna films if only he had done it yeah <laughs> <laughs> what a team they would have made. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's her major credit, uh, her major film credit, Satirica. And she also did a few things with Andy Warhol and um, spent time with Salvador Dali. Occasionally, there are uh, little exchanges in this movie that um, I think hint at the comedy that might have been. Um, and I, oh, I should... I should go back and emphasize that the first time I saw this years ago, I it just washed over me like a big mess, and I just didn't really think anything of it. And then for this podcast, I've watched it three times in the last week, you know. And the first oh, of those, God bless you. Yeah, the, <laughs> the problem is I'm starting to like it. <laughs> over the course of these three viewings this week, I've gone from that same kind of like what a mess indifference to thinking oh actually there's one or two things i like about this and then uh, on my what is now my fourth viewing last night i, I kept laughing at things maybe i'm, I'm getting punchy or something but you know oh, there's no. little exchanges like uh luna has this scene with uh, the, the the hippie leader whose name is stash she says i've never met anyone like you before he says oh hey there's lots like me and she says yeah but you're here kind of funny no <laughs> no come back noah come back you clearly have been drinking the kool-aid yep. it's like yeah, it's like problem. stockholm syndrome with this movie <laughs> there is a lot of bad times. kool-aid going around 
Yeah. Well, what about? What do you want to do tonight, Noah? <laughs> Skidoo! Skidoo! <laughs> Put it back on! Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about when Stash says to uh, Darlene, the Jackie Gleason's daughter, played by Alexander Hay, he says to her, I wish I could be nothing. And she says, what? And he says, nothing. <laughs> gold. It's gold. I'm telling you, watch it three times in two days. <laughs> You'll start to think that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like you were clockwork oranged. And, and <laughs> sort of watch this movie to sort of change your understanding of what comedy is. Uh, is this an intervention, Cinco? <laughs> Yeah, please, <laughs> Noah. Well, I do think it's not a good sign for a comedy if you have to watch it four times to start laughing at things in it. So, yeah, it's yeah. not to say it's a, a, a good or successful film, but uh, what can I tell you? Uh, there's also something about the music. Like, I've gotten the music in my head, and that will go a long way toward getting you hooked into something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is something there. It does have some of the elements that has made cult comedies of the past successful and that reward repeat viewings, you know, but I don't think, I don't think it's that, but, but, um, I think some people have maybe tried to make it that though. Maybe that it's like, a, a, I feel like maybe John Waters like would appreciate this, this movie, you know, on, on that level. But, um, do you think in some ways it would have to be worse to have a so bad it's good, uh, status, you know, to be uh, beyond yeah, the valley of the I, dolls or something, or faster pussycat. You know, it's it's like, yeah, I think it would have to be more extreme and and worse <laughs> if if that's and I think that is possible. So, yeah. like, in a, he even failed at, <laughs> at badness. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah, because it has a little too much of that old fashioned Hollywood craftsmanship about it. Yeah. Um, it's it's obviously like an expensive big production too. Yeah, with the whole set with the bed going, to, you know the 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 classic bachelor pad, which is that's a trope that we saw a bunch of times starting in the '60s, right? That you yeah. push a button and the bar appears, and then the bed, you know, walls flip around, revealing different things. But there's like yeah. there's money in that. That's yeah. expensive. There's a lot of technology in the movie, which I, I guess is also uh, very current at the time. Yeah, lots of remote controls or the computerized orientation in the prison. Right. They figure out a way to talk to Mickey Rooney through his television set because he's, yeah. he's isolated, you know. And well, then the, also the production value of making that massive balloon. Yeah. Right. For the prison escape. Like that's that's production value. And by the way, is also in. <laughs> The minions escape prison in a massive balloon just like that in Despicable Me 3. So clearly we were also referencing Skidoo. <laughs> which, which you hadn't seen yet. The thing it reminded me most of is, uh, have either of you seen um, Zabriskie Point, the Antonioni no. film? No. Um, that's, which is the, the, the film that Antonioni made in America uh, after he made Blow Up in London and, and you know, made such a successful job of kind of capturing the, the rhythms of 60s London. He then went to America and made this, this tremendous uh, disaster, it's a risky point, about 
about the same kind of things about about the cult- counterculture and 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 drugs and dropping out and all that stuff. Except it, his film is is not a comedy. It's an an incredibly po faced <laughs> serious drama that everybody just you know laughed laughed to death. Um, but but it it looks and feels very much like Skidoo, much more than I think than Skidoo looks and feels like um, the more superficially similar things of that time, like Casino Royale or Head or or mm. whatever. You know, um, it, it it has something of that that kind of heaviness to it. I think it's 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 not a buoyant film, is it? It's it's very very stodgy and heavy. Um, so I I yeah I couldn't I would never in all honesty call it good, but I don't think it's anywhere near you know the worst of late 60s cinema and it's not it's not like um you know that there's there's a dearth of other candidates for that crown you know even <laughs> even some some highly regarded things like um uh just the other day in fact i watched um lindsay anderson's film if oh yeah hugely acclaimed film um and it's rubbish it's complete <laughs> rubbish and it's um uh, vastly more vastly more pernicious in its messaging than than this rather sweetly naive little <laughs> druggy film <laughs> I mean, I need to revisit if because I remember watching it when I was a teenager and really liking it. But just because I thought Malcolm McDowell was so cool at that point, I think I was very. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah. I think we might be getting to the end of our film discussion. <laughs> yes. Getting to the end of this episode of Make Him Watch It at Gunpoint. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there uh, are, are there any other points or things in the film you want to make sure we, we hit? I will say that, like, I thought those commercial parodies that started off were kind of funny. Like, I thought that was interesting, and I thought, like, oh, what is this movie going to be? But then, I none of that was there. But it was that's also like such a thing of the time, like like filmmakers being dismissive of TV and and commercials and such a thing. But I guess commercial parodies have been a hot topic for parody from the beginning of time. But it seemed like there was a big missed opportunity when she's switching back and forth. And I thought they were going to do the thing where, like, the the dialogue was somehow making sense back and forth between the two things. And they didn't they didn't even bother to do that. So, Or at least there would be more channels. You know, it's just <laughs> the same three or four. Over and over again, the same stuff. I found it very, very, uh, very difficult film to get into for that, that scene. Yeah. It's a weird opening to the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy opening. We're just watching a TV set and hearing them talk off screen for about 10 minutes. Jerry, I don't want to watch that. (laughs) Yeah, my God, yeah. (laughs) Some of those uh, commercial parodies are, I think, actually funnier and more effective on the soundtrack album because they're not broken up by all the channel changing. Um, and ah. you can hear, you know, and you have the soundtrack album. I've been listening to it. Yeah. When, when you said I had the songs in my head, I thought you just meant from the movie. I did not know. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm really getting worried Noah now. has really immersed himself. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, <laughs> he needs to be deprogrammed at this point. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, not denying that one bit, but yeah, you know, I, I immerse myself in these things for the podcast and, uh, and yeah, I do think actually, <laughs> if you listen to the the Nilsson album Skidoo, you do get those those like that cola commercial, drink this cola and he'll never yeah. leave you. Uh, that stuff actually plays better in you know uninterrupted uh, for family fun. Get your gun. Um, I mean, that's, you <laughs> yes. know, you can kind of it's it's a little bit of a blunt object as far as uh, parody goes, but um, 
But uh, yeah, you you got to find the soundtrack, folks, if you can get your hands on it. <laughs> Is there a novelization? I'd love a novelization. <laughs> <laughs> this is that's like pure grade stuff you know the film is kind of di- they've diluted it it's been a bit cut but this is the real stuff in its purest form <laughs> yes dude. Yeah. not cut with rat poison or anything <laughs> well uh let's talk about the very end then uh cinco you've talked about the very end a little bit and groucho's uh moment actually reincorporating a joke from earlier in the film about marijuana smelling like pumpkin or tasting like pumpkin um yeah it's classic joke construction classic payoff <laughs> plant and payoff it was that's why it worked yes. for me it was just sort of like the timing of it he takes the drag and then he's go pumpkin pumpkin i don't know it was funny it has a k in it k is funny um so <laughs> so that worked but also it's notable like i think this in some ways, the film was really known that Nilsson sings the credits at the end, right? Sings the That's closing a- credits, yeah. Jackie Gleason was Tony Banks, Carol Channing Flo, Frankie Avalon, Angie, Fred Clark, a tower guard. That's, I think that actually really got him a lot of attention at that point in his career, you know, it was such a unique thing and it's funny in that playboy after dark he seems to have actually kind of memorized it because he just sits at the piano and starts to go through all the i assumed he was singing it like looking at a page of the credits and just sort of improvising it but actually he wrote a real song i think is is what that revealed to me very interesting and fun yeah it's impressive and and pretty good and actually i think if you cut out the like (laughs) It's like a 90-minute movie. I think if you cut out the 75 minutes in the middle, <laughs> you you would you might have a very entertaining film. Yeah, I like I like the singing of the closing credits. It's funny he even sings the year in Roman numerals at the end and, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, Groucho Marx ends his film career in a sailboat, um, sailing off into the distance, smoking a joint with Austin Pendleton. And I'm not sure that I don't love that. Yeah, and like he's wearing like robes, like sort of Hare Krishna like robes or something. I very bizarre. For the most part in the movie, his grease paint mustache um is a little different in shape and size than his old grease paint mustache in the Marx Brothers films. Um in my essay Anatomy of a Mustache, which appears in Matthew's <laughs> Matthew's book, That's Me Groucho. Uh, I assigned a name and a diagram uh, to each of the Groucho mustaches through history. Ah, there it is. Mm. And uh, oh, this one, yes. I, I called it the Lysergic Trapezoid. Um, yeah, it's a trapezoid. Yes. But there are some publicity pictures or behind the scenes pictures of Groucho in this costume wearing that uh, kind of Krishna robe and love beads and yeah. things. But in these photographs, he seems to have a much larger, more classic grease paint mustache. And there's a photograph um, that I think is fairly haunting um, of Groucho in that costume with the mustache. Um, haunting because it's a close-up. And um, as you note in your book, Matthew, there are no close-ups of Groucho in the film. Um, but this photograph mm. really looks like... It almost looks like you took a picture from Duck Soup and used AI to age Groucho, <laughs> you know, oh, wow. uh, to the age of 80 or something. Um, we'll, we'll post it on our website. Uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting and somewhat haunting thing to look at. 
Uh, in the film, though, it's a it's a daintier mustache he's painted on his face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, make of that what you will. The reaction to the film, the critics liked it as much as we did. I think. Yeah, it was a notoriously unsuccessful flop. Uh, hard to find any positive reviews of it from the time. I have found some more recent critics who have appreciated things about it, um, but they tend to be contrarian critics, um, like Richard Brody oh. in The New Yorker, uh, who can always find something good to say about a movie that everyone hates. <laughs> yes. Um, but he does. Uh, he, he comments on on its weaknesses, too, but praises some of the camera work and uh, and some of what Preminger did. Its reputation among Marx Brothers fans is very low. Um, and I think we could certainly say that um, even if you take the most generous uh, appraisal of the movie as a movie, it's not a very good showcase for Groucho. And it's it's not really a great note to end his film career on. I think when Timothy Leary says in the trailer, I think this movie is going to turn on the country. I think he was a little over optimistic, do we think? <laughs> well, the country turned on the movie. <laughs> 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 yeah it was a dud and it deserved to be a dud i always when i watch a movie like this i wondered like how much did they know did they know right i mean groucho tended to always think what he was working on was garbage it seemed like but when he was working on it but like i feel sort of embarrassed for the actors and did they feel embarrassed and you know were they aware that it was bad or did it go off the rails at some point and they you know it's it's, it's uh, that's always fascinating to me and so i i wonder what the case was with this with everybody sort of talking to each other like out of earshot of preminger saying like what are we doing what is this going to be yeah yeah because i don't think it's any worse than the script it's not one of those things where you, it, it, it looks good from the script. So unless it was one of those films where they were kind of making it up as it goes along, which it certainly doesn't look like, no. Um, then no, they, they can have no excuse <laughs> for not knowing exactly what they were getting into. Yeah. <laughs> oh. uh, Gleason apparently walked out of the premiere um, in Miami Beach. The premiere was held uh, in Miami because that was, was Gleason's kingdom, you know. Um, and yeah. he apparently couldn't sit through it. Uh, so that... That tells you something. <laughs> he started going, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, another moment that I laughed at the on the fourth viewing was after Gleason's, uh, after his acid trip, he emerges from this hallucinogenic sequence and he says with utter seriousness, give me a flower. Yes. <laughs> and he gets a shaving brush, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, a shaving brush. Yeah, oh. yeah. And how about his acting, the scene where he's suddenly in tears, like he, he really emotes yes. in this. Yeah. Thinking about his daughter maybe being killed or something. I think that was the moment. Right. I don't know. There we go. All right. Well, we want to thank our guest, Cinco Paul, for joining us for this discussion of my favorite film, Skidoo. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. So honored that of all the movies to do a deep dive on, you've invited me to take part in this. That's It was touching. It's meaningful. <laughs> I will never forget it. <laughs> well, Cinco, we would be happy to discuss anything with you. But I, but I must say, this film... You you, you, are a, you are a film connoisseur. You're particularly, I know, 
from your podcast, among other things, that you are interested in the obscure in the film world. Uh, you're a Harry Nilsson fan, and you're a huge musical guy. And uh, the music is one of the things um, that makes this film so great. <laughs> Genuinely, obviously, I love talking with you guys and being on the podcast. And this was super fun. And we want all of our listeners to watch Schmigadoon and listen to Make Him Watch It. Um, Schmigadoon sort of sounds like Skidoo in a way. Yeah, right? that's right. It's sort of like, don't watch Schmigadoon. Skidoo, Schmigadoon. watch Schmigadoon. 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 <laughs> uh, and before we close this up and before Cinco tells us what music we're going off on... Um, Going out on, I should say. And before Noah rushes away to watch Skidoo oh, again. I'm going to watch it again, yeah. <laughs> I want to say a few brief words of update regarding Patreon. Uh, we want to thank everybody. In fact, we'll say it twice. Thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers who keep the show going. By going to patreon.com slash Podcast, or by going to com and clicking the big orange Patreon button at the top of the page, you can help support the show for as little as $3 a month. Patreon subscribers receive perks and extras whose value cannot be expressed in words. That includes our monthly members-only bonus segment, at the higher levels, gifts of heartbreaking beauty, like our exclusive Bogards After the Hunt poster, Huxley College t-shirts, Hotel de Coconut tote bags, and Kippered Herring Barrel coffee mugs. Not to mention the popular monthly patron postcard delivering exclusive and original Marxian artwork to your actual physical mailbox every month. This month's postcard, uh, number six, is a particular treat. It is a Skidoo-inspired creation by an artist I admire a lot, mentioned earlier this episode, Marx Brothers Council member Tristan Yance. And uh, if you lick this postcard, you may see Groucho's head on a screw. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I've been missing out. I'm signing up. Happy to send you a postcard, Cinco. Tristan Yonce is uh, is also is the author of the official Abaddon Costello coloring book. I didn't even know that. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, oh. he is. Yeah, he contributed to our Abaddon Costello poll in in our book. Oh, I've got to nice. look for that. Uh, Tristan's a, a great guy, and his draftsmanship is really just wonderful. He contributed some images to uh, some of the Fredonia Marx Brothers uh, videos that I produced over the last few years, too. All right, so uh, Cinco, what is our closing music this episode? Our closing song is Matthew's favorite, and I think people should <laughs> sing it to him from now on anytime they come in contact with it. I think links to it should be dropped on the Facebook page, constantly tagging him in them. Um, Matthew, Matthew. Matthew. <laughs> uh, <laughs> take it away, Carol Channing. <laughs> There's sun power, gun power, atomic power, fun power, power power, flower power, go power, and low power. And if power is all they really understand, we take the power of the flower and the power of the dove. We put them both together and we love them to death. Mmm, Skidoo, skidoo, the only thing.
thing that matters is with who you do. Skidoo, skidoo. The only thing that matters is with who. Skidoo, I do. I do believe it really is the thing to do. Skidoo, skidoo. And the world can be a better place for you. Well, you gotta be good and you gotta be kind But there's a lot of people think they gotta draw the line They separate the good, the bad, the wrong from right They forget about the colorless between the black and white The groovy little in-between There is a two. Look around, and if you open your eyes, you may begin to think you shouldn't criticize the way another person wants to wear his hair. For in the overall analysis, the only thing that counts is the magic in the love you share. Skiddle, skiddle. The only thing that matters is with who you do. Skiddle, skiddle. The only thing that matters is with who. The Marx Brothers Council Podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! matter with who skadoo skadoo it really isn't old and new 
something anybody can do. You know, I can't have that middle section, Diane. It's too uh, groovy or bluesy, you know. But the first part's all right. I gotta come up with some kind of a bridge. That stinks. Skadoo, skadoo. It doesn't really matter with who. Skadoo, skadoo. It really isn't old and new. laughing at my Carol Channing imitation. It doesn't really matter with who. <laughs> it doesn't really matter with who. <laughs> She's so great.